Thanks for joining us for episode 13, everybody. Brennan, who is our guest? Our guest was a return of Dr. Aaron Belkin. He is a professor at San Francisco State University of Political Science. We had him on a few weeks ago, so if you haven't heard that episode, please go back and check it out. And Nick, what did we talk about in this episode? We talked a lot about Take Back the Court. So Aaron Belkin is the founding director of both the Palm Center and Take Back the Court. And in our first episode, we went in depth about um, his work around the Palm Center and also the transgender military ban. And in this one, we go pretty deep into um, his work with Take Back the Court and a lot of the things that they're doing um, around that. So, yeah, very informative. If you aren't familiar with everything going on with Take Back the Court, we encourage everybody to like kind of get yourself up to date on what's going on because a lot of it's current. So uh, and then listening to the podcast will probably be um, much more accessible if you can paint the full picture of what's going on in your own head, but, um, super informative. And I think everybody's really going to like it. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Enjoy. Cool. Well, Aaron, thanks again for joining us and jumping on again. I know we've got a lot to talk about. So, um, I think, you know, where a lot of this conversation is going to be around this time is going to be the things you're doing with take back the court. So if you could maybe start by giving everybody some perspective on what take back the court is and some of the work and focus um, that you guys are doing. Yeah. um, Take back the court is um, you can think of it as a project or a campaign or an Institute and its mission is to underscore the urgency of Supreme court expansion as a necessary step for restoring democracy. Cool. So could you maybe give us some context? I know Nick and I have a few notes here because there's a a lot of details to keep track of. I mean, especially for us, we're not um, nearly as immersed in this as you are, but um, some of the, some of the key points and like the priorities that make take back the court and, and like you said, you know, restoring democracy, um, like where, where's the focus being, being put as far as making that a reality? I don't understand where's the focus being put to make that a reality. In other words, what are the strategies or what's the rationale or what, like, which part are you asking about? Um, actually, why don't we do both? It, what's the rationale and then what strategies to, um, are you employing? Yeah. Yeah. So the rationale is that three things have come together, um, for the first time in American history. And we've had elements of all three of these things in the past, but this is the first time when they all have converged um, at a point in time. And the first is that arguably the Supreme Court was stolen in 2016 when a uh, vacancy opened after the late Justice Scalia died and Mitch McConnell would not allow President Obama to fill that vacancy, which is the first time that's happened in modern American history. The court had already been, I mean, it had delivered a few progressive rulings, especially in, uh, in gay rights, but, but the data show that the court was already uh, an extremely conservative court for the past generation. And so that vacancy would have flipped the court from, a, from an arch conservative court to a, to a more progressive court. Um, but not only did Mitch McConnell um, steal the seat, but even ostensibly moderate Republican leaders like the late John McCain said that if Hillary Clinton were to win the 2016 election, but the Republicans held the Senate, uh, they would simply freeze the size of the court at eight until a Republican won the White House again. 
so in other words, they weren't going to give up that seat uh, no matter what. Uh, so the first issue is that the court was arguably stolen, although, you know, some people don't like that word stolen, but it's pretty much what happened. Um, and, 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 and the reason it was stolen is because the court, um, the court is part of Mitch McConnell's formula for winning elections, which gets us to the second, uh, problem and the second rationale for take back the court, which is the court has implicated itself in the sabotaging of democracy on behalf of the, um, of the GOP. Uh, and so the courts, uh, shattered the voting rights act, um, has been shattering campaign finance limitations, not just in citizens United, but going back a generation, uh, the court later would, would bless hyperpartisan gerrymandering. And, and all of these moves are made for a reason, which is that they enable, um, Republicans to win elections in a country in which Republican ideas are becoming less and less popular. Um, and so they rely on, I mean, I'll, I'll use the word cheating, which is what I think voter suppression is, but more polite people say constitutional hardball, but, but the Republicans have to cheat, um, in order to win and the court, um, enables that. So that's the second thing. And the third thing that came together is that, um, the court, uh, at least when I started, uh, take back the court two and a half years ago, seemed very unlikely to allow, future administrations to address the crises we face as a nation. So not just democracy crises like voter suppression, which are in that kind of second pillar of the rationale, but here I have in mind more kind of policy crises like climate change and gun violence. And like, how could I be so sure about that? Well, when you look at the data, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from, uh, from Rhode Island did a study of um, every single split decision civil case under Justice Roberts, in which Republican donors had a major, uh, a clear and major interest. So, so what's a split decision civil case? It's a so civil case, non-criminal case, uh, and a split decision case is a five-four or five-three decision. That, that when the when the court splits five-four or five-three, that means it's a pretty, almost certainly a pretty high stakes and or ideologically charged case. And so, at the time he did a study a couple of years ago, there had been seventy-three. Uh, uh, split decision civil cases under Justice Roberts going back to 2005, uh, the court had voted in the direction favored by Republican donors 73 times. So 73 out of 73. So 100% of the time. And these were cases that involved, you know, climate, corporations, racial justice, women's rights, and just all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, the, the range of things the court decides it is clearly not a court that, uh, well, and I'll say this, interestingly, in about half of those 73 cases, uh, Senator Whitehouse showed the conservative justices sidestepped or, uh, or undermined, um, or ignored, uh, conservative judicial doctrine like originalism or textualism or a stare decisis, um, uh, the, the, the kind of substance of those doctrines don't matter, but what, 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 what that pattern shows is the conservative justices are politicians in robes. I don't think they give a shit about law or fairness or conservative doctrine. They care about GOP partisan power, about corporate power, about uh, white supremacy, um, and that's it. And, uh, and that's what their voting record shows. Um, uh, evidence be damned or law be damned or even their own doctrine be damned. And so with those three things coming together, um, a stolen court and 
you know, as a political science professor, I know that democracies don't work when courts are stolen. So that in and of itself was bad and have to be responded to. So a stolen court, a court that has been sabotaging democracy and a court that is unwilling to, to allow uh, administrations to address planetary emergencies like climate, something had to be done. And there is a clear solution uh, to the problem, which is um, called court expansion. Um, other people call it court packing. Uh, but the problem back in 2018 when I started the project um, was that that, uh, that idea had been taboo for 81 years since 1937. And so, um, so the idea of take back the court was to, was to get the issue um, on the map. Um, so, uh, so that's the, that's kind of the underlying rationale behind the campaign. But then, but then like, what would the payoff be like? So, so what, you know, who cares about getting the idea on the map? Well, there are a couple things that we were trying to do and it's worked so far. Um, one is, um, just by making, you know, if we could end up, uh, making a credible threat, not just like one dinky project, but getting powerful groups and leaders to endorse court expansion just by making that threat, we thought we could move the Overton window or open the Overton window. In other words, open up a space for a more robust conversation of other reforms short of expansion. And that's worked because when journalists ask uh, Democratic politicians about court expansion and they don't want to uh, endorse expansion, they have to say something. Um, and so they'll revert, like Bernie Sanders will say, no, I don't support expansion, but I support term limits. Well, we didn't have support for term limits before, uh, before we pushed court expansion onto the map, or we didn't have it at least in a robust way. And so, so the first point of fighting the fight is to, um, uh, is to open up a space for, um, for, uh, reforms, uh, short of expansion. The second kind of payoff, you know, aim, whatever, um, uh, is to try to moderate the court. And the notion is that um, by to the extent that Democrats could make a credible threat to expand the court, um, that might encourage the court to moderate its behavior to take some of the take some of the wind out of the sails of the judicial reform movement. Um, uh, and, and, and if we could, you know, even encourage the court to moderate itself in one decision, um, that could help millions of people. And, and sure enough, um, as our work took off over the last two, two and a half years, um, we had a term uh, last year where the court issued four non-terrible decisions uh, in uh, trans rights, uh, DACA, uh, reproductive justice, and, um, and gun safety. Um, some of the decisions, they weren't great. They were, you know, at best provisional wins, but, but they at least were not terrible losses. And, and even conservative court experts speculated that a big part of the reason why the court appeared to moderate itself on those decisions was the robustness of the court expansion threat um, that we engineered. So that's, that's, you know, that's a very, very important thing. I mean, just on reproductive justice, for example, uh, Roberts at his 2005 confirmation hearings, um, I'll use the word lied and said that he thought that Roe v. Wade was settled law. And then over the next 15 years, every six, every single time he had an abortion case in front of him, six times he voted to dismantle Roe v. Wade until last year when we finally got a non-terrible um, uh, reproductive justice ruling out of out of Roberts. Um, uh, 
and and so and so folks think that that that, that our strategy worked in, in in partially moderating the court. And then the third uh, idea is that um, by pushing, if we could push really hard and and get a little luck, um, we actually might end up uh, getting a court expansion bill. And and sure enough, um, I believe there will be movement in Congress soon. It doesn't mean a court expansion bill will pass tomorrow, but but if you don't have the conversation first, you're never going to get the bill. Now that we're having the conversation, there's at least a chance that that the reform could take place, and that would that would mean everything for the um, for the Biden White House. So that's the that's the rationale. Yeah, and so with the court expansion, like ideally, what would that look like um, in this process? Like, how many court justices do you think are necessary to be added, and um, what would that just kind of look like in general? Well, I mean, you have to have at least four justices to get a, uh, a more progressive court. I, I think it makes sense to advocate for six justices because the last thing we want is to, again, be one heartbeat away from having a conservative court for another generation. Um, but uh, it's just not politically uh, uh, viable to advocate for six justices. So the, so, the, so the recommendation, I mean, we've actually bounced around a little bit and sometimes said six, sometimes said four, sometimes said enough to get get the job done. But, but as a community, there, there's now, well, we helped put together a coalition of groups who support expansion. There were zero organizations in favor of expansion when we started, and now there are more than 50, mostly black and brown led. And so the coalition has agreed to advocate for four. Mm. So, and then as far as the process goes, so I'm just thinking like, okay, so we've got the expansion, like in a hypothetical and but would the appointment process have to be altered in some way in order to achieve the spread or um, could you expand on that maybe a little bit Yeah, on I why mean, it wouldn't? No. Uh, so Congress would need, I mean, the size of the court has changed six times in American history and the constitution allows Congress to shape the contours of the court. So um, uh, there's, I mean, it's totally consistent with the history of American politics and practice to change the size of the court. There's also a workflow argument to be made, by the way, because the court has been issuing fewer and fewer rulings and it just is not able to decide the vast majority of cases. Uh, and here's anyways, uh, I mean, that are, that are, you know, that, that litigators ask them to, to, to consider and rule on. But no, no. So you'd pass a law. You'd have to kill the filibuster um, or do it on budget reconciliation uh, because you're not going to get 60 votes in the Senate. Um, and then you, I mean, our recommendation would be to have the four appointees teed up for Senate confirmation that day. So as to not give the Supreme court a chance to, uh, subject the court expansion bill to judicial review. Um, but that, I'm not sure if that, if that could happen, but, 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 you know, the nominations would be the same as nominations today, which is the president would nominate the Senate would, uh, would confirm. Got it. Yeah. And so you said filibuster. I think this is something that didn't really come up for me in my um, like vocabulary or knowledge until over the past like five years or so. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just explain like what it is and why it's important that we do dismantle the filibuster and get rid of it? Well, I mean, that's a that's a whole separate but a related conversation. So the filibuster. The filibuster is a supermajority rule in the Senate that means effectively that um, with very few exceptions, um, uh, bills cannot be enacted into laws without 60 votes in the Senate. 
Um, so it's a, it's a super majority th- uh, requirement as opposed to a majority requirement, which, which would just be 51 senators uh, w- would be required under, under, under uh, a majority requirement. The problem, well, there are many problems. Just broadly speaking, it's way too hard to pass a law in American society. Um, we have four veto points already, which is um, the bill has to, to become law, has to pass through the House, the Senate, the president and survive judicial review. That's four veto points. That's more than most Western industrial countries. And, and, and there's a scholarly literature that shows that as countries have more and more veto points to pass laws, in other words, as it becomes harder and harder to pass laws structurally, um, law becomes less responsive, not surprisingly, to what citizens want. So, so you know, 90% of the country wants background checks and it's not even on the agenda because we have so many veto points. So that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that the veto points are already subject to minority capture or counter-majoritarian capture. And what does that mean? That means that um, you know the Republicans keep winning presidential elections even though they don't get a majority of the popular vote. Most of the conservative justices now were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Uh, in the House, um, the, the Republicans don't need to win 50% of the popular vote to control the House. The Democrats need to, need to beat the Republicans by 5 or 6 or 7%, which is a huge amount, in order to control the House, and, and even more so in the Senate. So, so in the Senate, um, uh, uh, Democratic senators represent 41 million more voters than Republican senators. So, 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 so the, the Republicans can control each body, even though they, it doesn't mean they always control. The Democrats just barely swept to power, but it means it's, it's much easier for the Republicans to capture control over the levers of power um, even though um, they don't represent a, a majority of the public. And so what that means is that a tiny number of senators representing a tiny sliver of the public can block desperately needed laws. I mean, you know, Barack Obama came in with 59 and then 60 senators and a national mandate for health care, and he almost didn't get health care. Not a single Republican would help him out. Um uh, so, so it's, it's, it's already too hard to pass laws. Then you add on top. So because of the number of veto points and the, and the vulnerability of each veto points to a counter majoritarian or minority capture. So then when you add on that, on top of that, um, the filibuster, which is a super majority requirement within one of the chambers, so that, that that's bad enough, and 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 Southerners had been using the filibuster for more than a hundred years. To, the filibuster is not in the in the Constitution, by the way. The founding fathers were very clear they did not support uh, uh, supermajority requirements because they'd seen how supermajority requirement had screwed the Articles of Confederation. Um, but um, but but racists, uh, white supremacists, put the filibuster in place basically to allow Southern senators representing a minority of the country to protect slavery and then later to protect Jim Crow. And so it had been used to do things like um, block federal anti-lynching legislation in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, The House kept sending federal anti-lynching bills to the Senate, and they died in the Senate, even though they had uh, vast, you know, vast, they were vastly popular majority public support, but you just get a few uh, Southern senators together and filibuster the bill. So that was already horrifying. But what's happened over the last 20 years is that the Republicans have come to abuse the filibuster um, such that they 
now filibuster uh, uh, everything Democrats want to do. And, um, and, 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 and the only way to get around the filibuster now is, is once a year through a very arcane, weird procedure called budget reconciliation. It basically lets um, uh, either side pass one law a year, um, the a law that meets very narrow criteria um, with 51 votes instead of 60 votes, but it can only be used once a year. Now that's what the filibuster does. Um, so, so in other words, you know, now um, uh, the Democrats want to pass HR one. It has the support of all Democratic members of the House and Senate, um, but they can't get sixty votes for it. So the so you know we've got millions of Black and Brown voters who are um, blocked from the polls. We've got you know dark uh, money coming in from uh, you know un- untraceable uh, dark money from corporations and even foreign governments. Uh, uh, you know, nothing can be done about that. We've got hyperpartisan gerrymandering wasting millions of votes. HR one would fix a lot of that, um, and the Republicans are just saying, nope, you know, forget it. So, so the filibuster is going to make it impossible to um, restore democracy. And the filibuster, of course, would be invoked to block a court expansion bill, even if every Democratic senator favored it. Now, I'll say one more thing about the filibuster, which is. And people don't understand this, but the filibuster, you know, it's scary to think about a world without the filibuster because when Republicans return to unilateral control, they will do super, they will try to do, and they will do super scary shit. Um, You know, they'll want to privatize social security. They want to get rid of Obamacare. Um, So the, the opposition to the filibuster for many people, has been about protecting progressive laws from Republican dismantlement. What, what, what folks don't always see, however, is that it's not the filibuster that protects programs that Democrats have established. It's the popularity of those programs. And there's been a contradiction that was identified in American public opinion about 60 years ago that the public doesn't like to set up new programs but once the programs are set up, the public likes those programs. And so, so the Republicans, for example, tried to dismantle the Affordable Care Act under budget reconciliation. So they only needed 51 votes. They couldn't get the 51st vote. Um, so it wasn't the filibuster that saved the ACA. It was the popularity of the program. And I would say the same thing about, um, about uh, uh, Social Security, uh, privatizing Social Security. But the Republicans are able... So, so the filibuster prevents Democrats, for the most part, from building new programs, with a few exceptions here and there. But the filibuster does not prevent Republicans from doing what they want to do, which is tax cuts, because they can just use budget reconciliation for their tax cuts. So um, so it prevents us from getting done what we want to do. It does not prevent Republicans from getting done what they want to do. And M- Mitch McConnell understands that, which is why he left the filibuster in place. It's not because he's an institutionalist. I mean, he proved time and again that he doesn't give a shit about norms and institutions. One final thing to say about this, and one another way to think about this, is that if the Democrats had been wise enough to get rid of the filibuster in 2009, Obama's first two years would have looked very, very, very different. He already accomplished a lot in those first two years, but he would have gotten things like a public option for ACA, a climate change bill, fixed the immigration system, uh, uh, a card check legislation to make it easier for unions to organize, um, all the, and way more. 
And the Republicans would have come in and they would have dismantled some of that. But on average, we would be in much better. We would be in much better shape today. Um, so, so the the plan at Take Back the Court has never really been just about the court. It's been about restoring democracy. The logic being, and this is in our founding documents two and a half years ago, you need to pass a democracy bill to restore democracy. To do that, you have to kill the filibuster. But if you only do those two things, the Supreme Court will destroy the democracy bill. So you kill the filibuster, pass the democracy bill, and then expand the court to protect the democracy bill from the stolen court. Got it. And so the democracy bill being the the HR1. Well, at the time, this was all pie in the sky. And, and, you know, Take Back the Court doesn't really do anything on filibuster elimination or HR1 because there are powerful coalitions that work on that stuff and we wouldn't add any value to that. But, but our, the effectiveness of what we want to do depends on those two, on those two things happening. Got it. Okay. And they so could- They have to go together. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot more sense for me um, in my process of trying to understand everything. Um, and so I guess with the HR1, uh, could you explain what that bill is and what kind of goes into that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a democracy restoration, but the, the Republicans have spent the last generation um, uh, ripping down uh, democracy. Um, uh, hundreds of voter suppression laws all over the country with hundreds more, more than 100 uh, in the pipeline now to, to continue to uh, prevent black and brown people for the most part from voting because that's how McConnell wins elections. Um, uh, destroy, so, 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 so HR1 would, would uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, make it much easier to vote, make it much harder to pass voter suppression laws uh, you know, early voting, mail-in voting, automatic voter registration, election integrity, uh, restoring campaign finance limitations, um, requiring um, uh, uh, nonpartisan redistricting commissions, and to, to kind of as much as possible get rid of hyperpartisan gerrymandering. Um, and so it's 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 about restoring, it's about leveling the playing field so that so that the GOP can't cheat. And, and, you know, it is clearly a partisan bill in that it's the Democrats who are pulling it off and the, and the Republicans depend on the cheating to win. But I mean, I would argue that destroying democracy doesn't, I don't, I mean, I don't think that benefits Republicans. I don't think that benefits anyone. And so um, Thomas Keck, a professor at Syracuse, distinguishes between two types of constitutional hardball, constitutional hardball that destroys democracy, like voter suppression, versus constitutional hardball that restores democracy like HR1 and court, exp- uh, court expansion. A term that's come up a lot as we've talked about this, and I think it, I, I think I have a grasp of it, but I'd love some more depth on it, is the term dark money. Um, is that like the typical type of, you know, funding and under the table type of um, stuff that goes on when it comes to like corporations funding politics or what, what does the term dark money mean and how is it applicable here? Yeah. I mean, it, so the basic idea is that, um, you know, you don't want wealthy people or corporations, um, to be able to purchase policy and when they can provide unlimited contributions to politicians, um, that dramatically uh, increases their power with respect to everyday American voters. And so campaign finance limitations are designed to make it harder for 
corporations and wealthy people to flood the system um, with spending. And the evisceration of those limitations has made it possible for all intents and purposes for corporations and wealthy people to purchase politicians. It basically, it's legal. To, the evisceration of campaign finance limitations has effectively legalized bribery. I mean, a lot of the stuff you're saying too, it, it's almost like hard to believe that like we continue to call like the world, like, you know, when we talk about the democracy and all of that stuff, like when we're educated on it in like, um, you know, middle school or high school or whatever, we talk about the processes and procedures that are in place and how everybody gets a vote and all this other stuff, but it doesn't really sound like that's the case. And like, I guess where I'm kind of going with this thought is like, how did we get so far from like really serving the public majority of what, like what a democracy is supposed to represent to the point where we've got corporations buying, you know, like you said, policy and power. And, um, you know, we've got represent unbalanced representation with our politicians on who gets X amount of votes based on the number of people that we represent. Like how big question, but how did we get here? It it seems pretty bleak. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, scholars of course disagree and I'm not, you know, I'm not a historian of American democracy, but for what it's worth, my perspective is that, um, capital is powerful and capital has been brilliantly playing a divide and conquer strategy for 400 years um, to get white workers uh, upset at black people um, and to get white workers to most of the time um, align their interests with capitalists um, with white capitalists um, because of their racial resentments effectively undermining their own class interests. And so, um, uh, you know, what that means is that um, capital in the form of wealthy people and corporations, especially over the last 50 years has successfully convinced um, white people to vote for capitalists who go to Washington and cut taxes on the rich and deregulate the economy, not because those white people support uh that economic agenda but because um um but because capitalists have used fox news and other tools for um inflaming uh grievance resentment and paranoia um in other words scapegoating um and that strategy has worked and um and one of the things those politicians do when they get to washington or to the state house um in addition to cutting taxes on the rich and deregulating the economy is um especially as the country has grown more diverse and the percentage of white people in the country shrinks, um, is that, 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 that coalition has, um, has, uh, chipped away at, at the, at the rules and norms of democracy to make it easier for them to win. I mean, which I refer to as cheating, you know, like I think voter suppression is cheating. I think destroying campaign finance limitations and hyperpartisan gerrymandering is cheating. Um, and, uh, and yeah, to me, it's, it's largely a story about the fusion of capital and, uh, and scapegoating and the scapegoating, the scapegoating is interesting. And we can, you know, we can, we can talk about the scapegoating because the scapegoating is not just about race. Um, in fact, the scapegoating is fascinating. 
Um, and there are a lot of questions to ask about it and things to say about it, but I think that's the short version of the story that I would tell. Yeah. It's just like, I, cause in all the conversations we've had about like in, on this topic, it just is like this, this corporate politics, like marriage that has occurred is, you know, really concerning. And I don't like, I don't know that there's any person I mean, obviously there are people, but you know, it's, it's a pretty widely disgusting like thing that goes on. I think a lot of people really just resent the fact that like a company can just come in and like, you know, basically buy the, the things like the policy that they need to get, get stuff done. And I mean, maybe you have a different perspective or a different perspective on the, the pulse. No, no, but I mean, it's, I think it's far more dangerous than that. And there's a lot more, it's, I mean, you know, Timothy Snyder, a historian at Yale says that when a party is committed to lying, uh, everything's on the table and, you know, things like, I mean, January 6th could be just the tip of an iceberg. And I would argue that Republicans have been structurally committed to lying for more than a generation. And it's because neither part of their coalition can tell the truth about what they stand for. So the capitalists really can't say that all they care about is tax cuts for the rich and deregulation because that's not popular. So they have to lie. Um, uh, and they, you know, they lie uh, about, well, so they have to lie about what they stand for. And then the resentment, and so, the, and, and, and so, you know, and then they use Fox News and Breitbart and other tools to whip up the paranoia and resentment and grievances of, of their voters to, to get them uh, elected. And, 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 and I would argue for the most part, the, the grievance voters can't really tell the truth about what they think. Um, uh, and so neither side of the coalition is able to tell the truth. And out of that, you get a party that, you know, has insisted for 25 years that climate change is a hoax or that it's not, you know, a reflection of human activity, that tax cuts that are clearly designed for the rich are, you know, for the poor and middle class and, and on and on, that gun safety doesn't work. Um, that gays undermine the military, that transgender people go rape, you know, rape folks in the bathroom. So, 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 you know, and you could see, so, so, so at every level they're, they're committed to lying. And the reason that the capitalists need the grievance voters to focus on phony threats is because the capitalists don't want the voters focusing on real threats would be, which would be expensive for the capitalists to address. You know, the capitalists don't want to pay to address climate change or, or, you know, the gun manufacturers don't want to, you know, sacrifice the revenues that would be sacrificed if we had real gun safety. Um, and so, but you could see this um, going back to Gingrich in, um, in 1995 when they, when the, when the Republicans took over the, the lower house. And one of the first things they did was they tried to defund the, um, the congressional research service. And I think they succeeded in killing off the office of technology assessment, getting data out of politics. So, so, so lying and getting data out of politics are the same thing. Um, and, 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 and so like, you know, Donald Trump comes along and just lies all day long every day. And that's a natural outcome of the Republican machinery, which has been, structurally committed to lying about pretty much everything for 25 years before he gets there. And now we have um, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Green Taylor, whatever, the QAnon congresswoman from Georgia, talking about Jewish space lasers. But I mean, I don't really think there's much of a difference between the Jewish space laser, laser stuff and the climate change is not a reflection of human activity stuff. It's just that, um, 
you know, the party has fancy marketing firms that make the climate lies seem more sanitized and they produce phony science to, you know, to reinforce it. Whereas the space laser stuff is just, you know, it sounds more wackadoodle. If anything, I think the climate lies are more dangerous. But anyways, so, so the whole party is organized around lying. And, you know, if you push that system to its extreme, you get, you get a January 6th where, where a president lies about the outcome of an election. Um, his followers believe him and they go storm the Capitol. Um, and that could be the tip of a very large iceberg. And so, and that, so when Timothy Snyder says that when a party is committed to lying, anything is on the table, that is, that is what he means. And so, yeah, the Republicans are super dangerous now. And, 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 and I would argue that the only way to de-radicalize them possibly is to unrig the system and force them to compete on a level playing field. I, I don't think they can be uh, de-radicalized at the ballot box. I mean, because the, the, the Democrats thrashed them uh, in 92, 06, and 08, and they became more radical each time. Uh, so it's, it's not going to be accomplished at the, at the ballot box. It's, it's got to be a, a, a kind of structural reorganization of democracy, and even that might not work. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just thinking about that and then looking at it from like a psychological or societal perspective, um, of course, there's a protection of power and there's like historical factors that go into this, like racism. But like, how do people get so ingrained in these belief systems? And like, how are they become so radicalized? I mean, I don't think people are so ingrained. That's one of the things that I think is interesting about Republican scapegoating is I don't, I mean, you know, racism and misogyny and anti-Semitism and homophobia and transphobia, they are entrenched beliefs. So they're deep, as you say. And but the paranoia machinery of the Republican Party, I would argue, is pretty capable of switching on and off paranoia, almost like a light switch. Um, uh, and, you know, we saw that with gays in the military where, you know, it, like the thought leaders kind of whipped up their base to, you know, position that as an issue that, you know, what like the sky was falling. And then when we finally won, they're like, meh, and they, you know, they stopped targeting gays in the military. Um, you know, Mike Pence, like he's a hero for four years and then boom, um, uh, Trump whips up his followers and they try to assassinate him. Um, uh, so, so I think that, that, that these beliefs are stirred up by capitalists through Fox news and, and right wing media echo chambers. Um, uh, in order to get people mad and to vote for Republicans, you know, the caravan of migrants, you know, so, and, and it's like the, you know, the, the, it's not like, so it's, it's a question of emphasis. So, so it's not like the xenophobia goes away when the party is not emphasizing it, but, but in some electoral cycles, the party will emphasize a caravan of migrants at the border at other it's, uh, you know, transgender rapists in the bathroom. Um, there's always the through line of black crime, um, and so, uh, you know, if, if thought leaders chose, when thought leaders choose to stop scapegoating a group, a lot of that stuff just simmers down pretty quickly, I would argue. Right. Yeah. I think that's an, I agree like with that perspective and it's, it's super interesting to think about those things in context of, yeah, like super passionate about this gets taken down 
Now it's like, whatever. <laughs> I don't, I don't think the resentment voters care about which scapegoats are being scapegoated. scapegoated. I mean, the same folks who, you know, got whipped up about a caravan of migrants are perfectly happy in this moment to, to be furious about transgender uh, athletes in high school. Um, so I don't really think they care about who they're being whipped up to hate, you know, and, and even on the micro level, it's really interesting to see how this works. Like there was a, there was a story in the New Yorker by this journalist who'd been going to a bunch of Trump rallies and he, um, he walked up to this guy who was, you know, tattoos and, uh, motorcycle aesthetic and kind of, you know, toxic masculinity aesthetic. And, and the guy starts really threatening the reporter, you know, you fucking faggot, you know, I'm going to kick your ass, like super violent, you know, scary threats and not just kind of joking around. And then the guy's girlfriend comes up, the, the Trump supporter's girlfriend comes up and is like, Oh, Tony, that's, you know, Bob, the journalist, I know him, he's a good guy. And, and, you know, and so then the motorcycle guy was like, Oh, sorry about that. You know, and would just like super chill with, with the journalist. Um, and, um, and even had some cognitive dissonance because, you know, um, you know, he'd say like, oh, I was just joking. And the journalist was like, oh, well, you called me a fucking faggot. And I was like, oh, I would never say that to you. And um, so, so, you know, even at a micro level, um, these, these, uh, into these, uh, the scapegoating can be switched on and off uh, pretty quickly. And it doesn't always work. I mean, uh, well, you know, um, Trump, he called uh, he called COVID uh, Wuhan flu, and he he tried to whip up a lot of anti Chinese anti China hysteria, and you actually are now seeing a lot more hate crimes against Asian people. Um, but I don't know if he I don't I don't think Fox News got in and, I, and Breitbart I don't think they got into it enough to really whip up the resentment in the way they whipped up like misogyny when Hillary was running or. Um, or uh, white supremacy about Obama, yeah. But so it's not that it always succeeds, but 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 the machine is capable of you know focusing on different targets. Yeah, and so going back to the HR one, um, like what's going on today? Like where is that bill at today? Well, the House passed it, and so and the Senate, uh, you know, it's going to face the filibuster in the Senate, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Democratic leadership basically has to negotiate with Joe Manchin and see if he will agree to, you know, not subject HR1 to the filibuster, which is an option, or to change the nature of the filibuster for HR1, like make it into a talking filibuster where the Republicans, instead of just saying filibuster, would actually have to go hold the podium 24-7 in order to, in order to maintain the filibuster. Um, so we'll just see. Mm. Yeah. How are you feeling about it all? I think it'll pass. Who knows? I mean, that prediction is worth, you know, is worthless because who knows, but, but Mm -hmm. there's a, you know, there's a lot of energy in the party behind HR one. And, um, and you know, Joe Manchin is not susceptible to a lot of energy in the party because he's probably not running again. And if you were running again, it would be, you know, he'd be running in a state that is just, you know, as ruby red as you can get. But um, I, I think Joe Manchin knows that voter suppression is not good. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And so if this passes and like looking forward, 
like next steps, like, I guess, what would you see or what would you want to see continue to happen? Well, this is the problem is that if it passes, I mean, I, I think that some nutty lower court Trump judge could put a preliminary injunction on, on the COVID act, the COVID recovery act. And, that could be tied up in litigation for years. Um, so we'll see if they overplay their hand on that. On HR1, I don't think the courts are going to allow HR1 to to go into effect. I mean, they could, you know, some lower court could put a, put a national preliminary injunction on part or all of HR1, and then it would be up to the Supreme Court to decide if the preliminary injunction would stand, in which case the bill would not go into effect while it's being litigated, which could be five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Um, or the Supreme Court could, could um, decline to honor the, could, could, could stay the preliminary injunction, cancel it, in other words, and, and allow the law to go into effect while it's being litigated. But, I mean, fucking ACA, which is clearly constitutional, is still vulnerable in court now, what are we, 10 years, 11 years beyond its passage. So, I mean, the right is not going to sit there passively and allow HR1 to be enacted. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. And so I guess just to dive into HR1 a little further, um, I know it talks about like banning voter suppression and gerrymandering. So in terms of the voter suppression, like what are kind of the details of, of what that might look like? Oh, well, um, I want to say, first of all, I'm not an HR1 expert, so you should talk to uh, an HR1 expert, of which there are many um, who can mm-hmm. go that. But the basic idea is that the way voter suppression, I mean, there are different forms of voter suppression. Um, our board member, uh, Carol Anderson, wrote a terrific, I, I might even say, a definitive book about it, um, uh, One Person, No Vote. Um, but the basic idea is that you just kind of use uh, well, first of all, you create a phony narrative, which the Republicans have done about um, voter fraud, and then supposedly, to, which is not, which empirically is not a problem in the United States, effectively never happens. But anyways, based on this phony narrative, you then pass bills to do things like require uh, IDs to vote, knowing full well that it's easier for white people to get those IDs than people of color, um, uh, or if you know if you have an area where um, Democratic voters are more likely to send in mail-in voting, uh, mail-in ballots. Then you um, uh, you uh, uh, you know make it harder to send in a mail-in ballot by doing things like forcing you to get a notary to 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 send in a mail-in ballot, or you know shrinking the number of days during which mail-in voting is um, possible. And then uh, you know all kinds of ways that you can make voter registration harder. And so 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 the way to fix that is to do things like um, just provide automatic voter registration or and to have like mandatory federal rules that make mail-in voting easy and that um, and that make it hard for um, if not impossible um, for localities and states to uh, you know to, to, to kind of use all the clever maneuvers they use to effectively block black and brown people from going to the polls. And I also was curious too, because earlier you mentioned the idea that um, there was progress being made, even if it wasn't made um, in the intended way. But you gave the example of um, Bernie Sanders being more open about his, you know, term length for um, the Supreme Court spots. So, in terms of that, like, what's the um, 
like, I guess maybe the pros and cons to shortening the term length of, of those seats. And then, um, it, there, are there, there, there is no term length. Those, those are lifetime appointments. Right. So, so if we did implement a term length, what would be the benefit of doing that in terms of, um, you know, getting to that end goal of like this restoration of democracy that we are kind of like working towards. And then are there any other things that are being done in the interim or other efforts that are, kind of spiraling out of this main initiative to get further progress made towards this restoration of democracy? Well, just on term limits, um, I mean, there, you know, there are um, several arguments for term limits, but, um, it, you know, it's hard to imagine that the founders understood that people would be living to 85, 90 <laughs> years old. Um, there's also yeah. kind of a, like a capriciousness that goes along with, um, you know, having a lifetime tenure for uh, justice who can, you know, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had lived a few more months, then that seat would be, you know, occupied by a progressive justice as opposed to an arch conservative justice. So, so the idea of kind of regular regularizing the appointment process and for example, having 18 year terms where each president gets two per term, two nominees per term, it would be about kind of standardizing the appointment process, uh, instilling some predictability, getting capriciousness out of the system, not having, you know, uh, octogenarians who might be slipping a little. I, I'm not saying any one justice in particular is slipping, but they, you know, they can stay on the court now, even if they're, yeah. if they're slipping. Um, uh, so, so term limits handles all that. Um, one of the problems with term limits is that it, and, and I think term limits are a good idea just for those reasons. Um, but also they're a good idea because any reform to the court, it's kind of like cracking Humpty Dumpty. You got to get the first crack in there. And it's a very, very strong signal to Roberts and Kavanaugh and, you know, the four, the other four of them, um, that they better be careful because, uh, because Congress will take action if they continue to rule in hyperpartisan, frankly, crazy ways. Um, the problem or one of the problems is that, um, term limit bill would not uh, moderate the courts, uh, would not necessarily moderate the court anytime soon. And our argument is that this, this two-year window now, and you know, we, we might not even have control for two years if a, if a Democratic senator dies, if Joe Manchin switches parties. But so this narrow window now may be the last time that Democrats have power for a very, very, very long time, because it's going to become what's it is already all but impossible for Democrats to win the Senate, um, and it's just going to become harder and harder and harder for Democrats to win the Senate because of Democrat uh, demographic shifts in the country. And so, you know, if a term limit bill is not going to have a moderating impact on the court for quite a while, but this is the moment when you need the court to do things like. Uh, uphold HR one, uphold a climate bill, uphold expanded healthcare access, uphold you know a law to address uh, systemic racism. Then term limits don't deliver a court that will do all that, and also term limits don't um, rebalance the court after its theft. Um, so there's then there's you know there's no political penalty for the for the norm breaking that that Mitch McConnell engaged in to steal the court. Got it. And then is there anything else that um, kind of obviously the long or the, I guess really what is being looked at is we need solutions in this next, in this two-year window, like you're saying, um, that can help address some of these issues when they may be 
you know, most opportune. I, I think so. I mean, you know, there's really no time left on the climate change clock on the climate clock. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure that waiting is a great idea. Yeah. Is there anything else out there that um, like initiatives that are being, um, you know, pushed that would help get to the same, you know, the restoration of democracy might be like a too broad of a term, but, you know, I don't, and I don't know, obviously there's other than the stuff, the work that you're doing, you know, there may not be any other real legal mechanisms to get into the, like yeah. to rebalance it. Yeah. I mean, there are a range of, um, there are a range of judicial reform alternatives. And in fact, just this past week, we had a conference at uh, Yale law school about different options for reforming the Supreme court and a, 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 a video of that, of those deliberations will be posted soon in the next week or two. Um, but one idea that is, co- it's um, popular among some scholars is called jurisdiction stripping where, you know, Congress could pass a democracy bill and in the bill, would say that the Supreme Court uh, does not have the right to uh, subject this bill to judicial review or say something like, you know, the court can only strike down this bill um, on a 7-2, you know, supermajority vote or something like that. Um, uh, there, are, there are pros and cons for, for jurisdiction stripping. Um, we at Take Back the Court think that court expansion is the only solution that's consistent with American politics and practices because the court's size has changed uh, six times in American history that would rebalance the court right away. Um, and that would deliver a court that would allow the administration and Congress to restore democracy and address the crises we face now. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a lot of those, you know, things that are being talked about, like the one you just mentioned would be real, just band-aids to what is, you know, a much deeper cut than, um, I mean, you, you could imagine, I mean, jurisdiction stripping doesn't have to be from one law to the next. Like you could pass a law stripping the court of its right to have jurisdiction over a whole category of laws. So, so you could have a, a, you know, jurisdiction stripping can be structural and patterned and not just ad hoc, but, um, yeah. Um, I mean, to take back the court, we, we just, we think that, um, it's, it's not a great idea because it also like it, you know, one thing that jurisdiction stripping could do is it could allow, you know, like devolve authority down to the appellate courts, which have also been stolen by the Republicans because they didn't allow Obama to nominate and, and fill, uh, any, uh, appellate, uh, seats, maybe one or two, effectively no appellate judges in the last two years of his presidency. And then then Trump rushed to fill all those openings. And so, you know, someone has to decide these issues. And if you strip the jurisdiction from the Supreme court, it's not necessarily the case that the, that the issue will be, you know, uh, decided in a fairer court. Mm. What, so with expanding the court, um, what are the arguments against? Is it like protection of power or what else goes into that? Um, so there are a couple arguments and, and, and our argument about the counter arguments is that, um, is that, uh, they look good on paper, but once you scrutinize them for, you know, five seconds that they really fall apart pretty quickly. Um, the one that comes up most frequently is, is kind of the tit for tat spiral that if, um, Democrats expand the court, then the Republicans will respond in kind. I would say that's the most common counter argument. 
yeah, what are your thoughts just about that? Like, what's the argument that Take Back the Court makes against that? Well, three things. So, first of all, the Republicans have already changed the number of justices to steal the court. Um, and so, if the Democrats rebalance it and the Republicans steal it again, uh, we're no worse off than we are today. I mean, if your wallet was stolen, you would not forego efforts to recover your wallet because it might be stolen again. And in a moment when there's no time left in the climate clock, I would argue it's better to have a, a zigzag where they steal it, we rebalance it, they steal it, we rebalance it. That's better than unilateral surrender. And just, you know, just on that first response to the Republican retaliation point about zigzagging, um, one of the most distinguished professors of democracy in the country um, at Harvard said to me a couple years ago, you know, your project is not a good idea. And as painful as it is, it would be better for Democrats to allow themselves to get kicked in the face for 35 years than to expand the court. He was really worried about this retaliatory cycle. Um, 35 years was just the number he was assuming it would take for the Democrats to get the court back through normal rotation. And I just don't know if there are 35 years left on the clock, um, you know, with 30,000 gun deaths a year and climate disaster, you know, looming on the not too distant horizon. So anyways, that's the first counter uh, response. The second response is that even if the Democrats do nothing, no, you know, no term limits, no code of conduct, no jurisdiction stripping, no court expansion, it is absolutely clear, absolutely clear that if the Republicans need to expand the court to control it, they will do so next time they have the opportunity and um, no, they didn't expand the court in 2017 when they had control over all the branches, but that's because they'd already stolen the court. So how can we be so certain that they'll steal it if and when they ever have to do so? Um, uh, because they've been trying to pack state Supreme Courts all over the country for the past decade, and they succeeded in packing the Arizona and Georgia Supreme Court. And they often use their behavior at the state level as a lab for how they're going to behave at the federal level. And indeed, the very idea of court expansion uh, in its modern incarnation is not mine and it's not take back the courts. It's the uh, co-founder of the Federalist Society who published a paper about a year and a half before take back the court even existed, uh, urging Republicans to uh, expand federal courts. And, and you know, so that, and so, 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 so is their idea. Um, and, you know, and we've just seen time. I mean, you, you know, the, the, the party, the party uh, did not condemn a violent coup attempt. Uh, so there is no norm that this party uh, respects uh, when its power is at stake and it is not going to tolerate the, Democrats uh, appointing a majority of justices uh, ever. So, you know, when only one side is respecting a norm, it's not a norm anymore. And that turns you into a sucker. So that's the second counter argument. Um, and the third counter argument is that counterintuitively, the safest way to protect the court, the safest way to deescalate the situation and depoliticize the court um, is to pass HR1, level the playing system and expand the court. Because as I mentioned before, the idea of court expansion is not about the courts. 
It's about saving democracy. And if you pass an aggressive version of H.R. 1 and level the playing field and force the Republicans to compete uh, in a fair system or a fairer system, that arguably could de-radicalize the Republicans if they have to, uh, uh, you know, they can no longer win elections by simply juicing their extreme base with crazy arguments and they have to appeal to a wider sector of the, of the public. And, and it's a de-radicalized Republican Party that will refrain from continuing this escalatory spiral of, of, of uh, ruthless judicial politics. So, so if you want to protect the court from all that, de-radicalize the Republican Party, the only way to do that is to pass HR, an aggressive version of H.R. 1 and then protect that bill from the court through court expansion. Yeah, and so I'm curious about like on a more personal level, just like what this process has been like for you over the past couple of years. Uh, pain in the ass. <laughs> I, I really don't like the work. <laughs> um, I don't take a salary for this work. Um, it's, you know, I had all these stories in my head about like being a good leader and a, you know, good strategist. And I've just fallen on my face again and again and again and again in this project and I mean, there are reasons for that. And it's not just me, like it's, we're in startup mode and it's hard to be a startup and, you know, it's hard to be a startup in an area where there is a cons- an 81 year old consensus that what you stand for is weird and bad. <laughs> uh, now I'm very proud that despite the behind the scenes stumbles, um, the work has always worked and the campaign has been very, very effective. And we can talk about that if you want. So despite how bad the work has felt, um, it's all, it's for the whole two and a half years, it's been effective and and we've managed to get court expansion on the map, um, uh, to the point where Biden had to talk about it during the, during the presidential campaign and had to talk about it a lot. Um, so that's what we were trying to do. And there's more support now than there's there's ever been, but it's felt terrible. I'm also I'm also proud and happy that that as an organization uh, things have stabilized, and so now I'm not you know falling on my face uh, uh, every day. Um, uh, you know now it's every few days instead of every day. Um, but um, so so there's been you know it's been a growing experience. So it's I'm, I, I, I you know I've been doing the work because I think it's important, not because I like it, but. I would be thrilled if just Congress would expand the damn court and then we could go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and you mentioned uh, even in our last conversation we had with you that your, your methodologies with the Palm center and, you know, really tying into the class that you teach on, you know, the dispersion method for a lot of these ideas and popularizing them in the big media. And that's how you're disseminating these ideas. Are you taking a similar approach um, with this? And yeah, if you could dive into your, methodology a little bit with how it's been going i'd love to hear about it yeah i mean so yeah i mean there's a there's a strong overlap with the palm center work the lgbt military work in that the what we're trying to do is change public and elite opinion um which is what the palm center has done it's just that in this case um we i mean the palm center has, has been able to take its time and on don't ask don't tell it you know, it took more than a decade to, to entrench our ideas. Whereas this has been much more rapid paced, almost like a political campaign. Um, and also the idea was more taboo than the gays in the military idea was when we started. Um, 
and there was also no lane in philanthropy for this work. Um, so there, there, there have been like a, a, a set of challenges that have been very different than what the Palm Center faced. But yeah, I mean, we've, we pursued a bunch of strategies. What worked at first was um, to get the idea on the map, you know, because there, there was, I mean, at the, the, the hardest thing to do, I mean, every step has been really hard, but the hardest thing was breaking through the first time because, you know, the idea had just not broken through in 81 years. Um, and so what we did was that was during the primary campaign and the primary cycles are moments when there is a once in every four years opportunity to get Republicans to talk about things that are a little more extreme than, than elected officials would normally talk about and to get Democratic candidates to talk about things that are a little bit more progressive than Democratic electeds would usually talk about. And the reason is because that um, the folks who vote, so not many people vote in primaries and the folks who do vote in primaries are the more extreme base of both parties. So in the Democratic primary, you know, you have 10, 11, 12, 13, I guess in this case, what, 17, 18, 19 candidates um, vying for a very small number of progressive voters in the primary and all trying to outdo each other and distinguish themselves, product differentiation for those, for those primary voters. And so there's an, that's, that's the rare time every four years when there's an incentive for candidates to, um, to, to endorse super progressive things that they might not endorse during a general election or once elected to office. And so we just socialized all the campaigns as aggressively as we could. Um, and we, um, we were able to break through and, and talk to Pete Buttigieg, uh, not me, but people on our team and also to his senior policy advisors. And then we planted a question at a Buttigieg event without telling him, of course, um, about, you know, would you support court expansion? And, and, and after my surrogate asked the question, uh, there was a pause in the room and the crowd laughed because it was such a ludicrous idea. And Buttigieg says, this is not, this is not a laughing matter. Um, and he went on, he didn't quite endorse court expansion, but folks in the room heard him endorse court expansion. So he wasn't quite heard in the way I think he intended to be heard. But as a result of that, he got national, this was before he'd broken out. He was, so he wasn't famous, but he got national media headlines the next day. Uh, I remember one of the headlines, I think it was Buzzfeed or Politico. It was like, um, there's only one candidate who's serious about good governance and it's not Bernie Sanders. And so all the candidates could see like, Whoa, like this guy got a lot of traction out of um, supporting court expansion, which he hadn't again, but people thought he had. So, you know, so we took that and kept leveraging, you know, small victory one at a time. And by the end of the campaign, I think a dozen, 11 or 12 of the candidates finally said that they were open to court expansion, including major candidates like Senator Harris, um, but now Vice President Harris, um, Senator Warren, uh, Governor Bullock from Montana. So these were not just, you know, the kind of extreme extremists, um, uh, but uh, Klobuchar, who's a moderate, said she was open to court expansion. Um, uh, but two of the candidates actually endorsed court expansion, um, uh, the lesser candidates, I'm um, Steyer and, and Wang, uh, Yang, I'm sorry. Uh, um, uh, so that was, that was the first, um, that was the kind of hatching of the, uh, of the idea was to leverage the primary process. Oh, nice. That's interesting. It's yeah, it's interesting how that, 
um, that one mark in like everybody's, uh, you know, political calendar kind of spurs this moment that you guys can really leverage to like push a message that typically you wouldn't be able to get endorsement on. It, does that pose a challenge moving forward now as you are looking for new opportunities to continue to popularize the idea or where have you found other other avenues? Yeah, I mean, and that was just one moment two years ago. So, and the primaries, of course, have long been over. They've been over for more than a year. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? There was <laughs> I totally forgot. There was there was a very important uh, preliminary step before the Buttigieg moment, which okay. was um, we had to legitimate our project because to get the candidates to listen to us, you gotta you know plant your. You can't just you know, they get pitched by crazy people all the time and you got to kind of show that you are representing a legitimate institution. And so the way you do that is you get a media article written about what you're doing, but to get a media article written about what you're doing, you have to have a board and you have to have some money and you have to have a campaign plan and you have to have staff. Um, and so we just, I mean, I think the board at that point was like three, two or three people and the staff was two people and, we had a tiny bit of money, but that was enough for getting a, a Politico article um, that said, you know, meet the group that's trying to expand the Supreme Court. So that legitimate legitimated us to approach the candidates. Yeah, I mean, we've had to we've had to do a, pursue a lot of different strategies um, since, and we've been pursuing these from the beginning. It's just they they've kind of worked and not worked at different times. So one is research. And media coverage of research. So we did an, uh, a study showing that the Supreme Court probably would strike down climate legislation. And then we got a Washington Post piece about that. Um, and we did a study showing that uh, the court would probably strike down HR1. And I think we got a slate mention of that study. And we just did a study uh, last week that showed that the court poses a grave danger to racial justice. One of the great, one of the gravest dangers the, to racial justice the country's ever seen. We've got a Washington Post story about that. Um, Washington Post piece written about that. Um, so, so using research to kind of make our case over time about the danger of the court uh, has been important. Um, Outreach to legal thought leaders. So I mentioned this conference at Yale University Law School um, is part of the story because you want law professors talking to their students and talking to journalists. And um, and so kind of elite persuasion um, has been uh, elite academic persuasion, um, uh, thought leader uh, persuasion. Um, one of the biggest days we've had was when Eric Holder came out in favor of court expansion. Um, we didn't do that, and we don't know how that happened. I, we're pretty sure he wouldn't have done that if we hadn't gotten the idea into the media first. So we, we take some credit for it. Um, uh, but, um, but I'm not sure who, who, who made that happen. Um, and, and group outreach and coalition building has been super important. And so, um, you know, from the outset, we reached out to groups working on gun safety, climate, uh, uh, reproductive justice, uh, racial justice, LGBTQ. The argument being to almost all the groups, except for the LGBTQ groups, um, you're not going to get your stuff unless the court is expanded, because even if you get bills through Congress, uh, you know, the court's going to strike them down. It's a slightly different argument to the LGBT groups. LGBTQ groups, um, unions, um, uh, 
those meetings did not really produce much at first, and the groups have been very, very hesitant to to hop on board. But but slowly over time, we got more and more group support. And then when RBG died, uh, a lot of groups came out of the woodwork. And then after the election, more groups came out of the woodwork. Um, so now uh, we have a coalition called Unrig the Courts, um, uh, and we have. Uh, a sign-on statement with more than 50 organizations, including some very important organizations like Sunrise, which is the author of the Green New Deal, and Demos, which is a very important racial justice think tank in Washington. So that's the the kind of non-democracy progressive groups. There's a whole other challenge getting the democracy groups um, on board um, because those groups uh, have been very focused on HR1 and have felt that uh, talking about the courts would turn HR1 from a political loser into a political winner. So that's been slow going. And then there's uh, an adjacent lane of getting the judicial reform groups, or, the, or just actually, sorry, the judicial groups on the left to support court expansion. And I'm really, really proud um, uh, that, uh, you know, one of the first things I did was I asked Brian Fallon at Demand Justice, um, which is a super uh, smart, savvy, plucky uh, new um, judicial reform uh, court uh, judicial group um, to co- support court expansion, and he said no, they weren't ready. But a few months later, they came out in favor of court expansion, and that was huge for us. Um, and now um, the Alliance for Justice, which is another big—I mean, not big compared to the right-wing judicial groups, but for the left, it's a, it's one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, judicial uh, nonprofit. And they have just recently come out for court expansion. So, so one group at a time, uh, the coalition outreach has. Um, has been important. And now there's going to be a legislative push, which is about, uh, you know, lobbying and uh, persuasion of members, but also hopefully mobilizing groups that have boots on the ground in districts to get their members to care about court expansion. So it's, it's garden variety advocacy tactics that, that every campaign uses. Um, I, 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 I'm, you know, there, there are groups that have spent 20 and $30 million to get, um, ideas on the map and that hasn't worked. So I'm really proud that my, you know, plucky little team has been able to get court expansion on the map for almost no money. Um, and so, yeah, the, the pushing continues. Yeah. I was, so you've touched on how like stressful this process has been. Um, but there, like we're saying, this has really been an action for the past two and a half years that you really started this and there's been huge leaps and strides. Um, how do you think like all the work that you've done with the Palm Center has really helped or supported this process or has it? Um, well, I mean, just that I had 20 years of Palm Center experience learning about the relationship between research and media and public and elite persuasion. So it was like kind of a, a training ground, but, but, but again, because the, you know, the Palm Center, leans more towards a uh, research institute, whereas the court's work leans more towards a political campaign. Um, I'm still learning a lot um, uh, all the time. Um, I mean, you know, the Palm Center has never really done digital and political campaigns have to do social media. And so um, that's a huge blind spot for me, but people on our team are really, really good at that. So, yeah. 
Yeah. It's interesting too. I, I hadn't thought that the the philanthropic angle for the Palm Center had been, was such a good like lever for you guys. I don't know if that was a, f- a funding lever or whatever that was, but um, do you think now that you've been able to kind of bring together a lot of the similar, a lot of these groups kind of this, I don't know. I was just thinking like you guys are kind of doing like a class action approach to like pushing on this thing. Um, do you think there's going to be opportunity moving forward to utilize you know, that kind of a strategy to use their initiatives as like, even, even if they may vary greatly to then feed into your guys's initiative or. Um, well, is it- sorry, the, the philanthropy is a whole different story. And I'm glad to talk about that, but that the philanthropy, the fundraising has been super difficult, uh, way more difficult than the Palm center fundraising um, has ever been. Um, so we can talk about that. We'll just put a pin in that for now, but yeah, I mean, the coalition is working very well together and I, and I, I mean, none of the other groups is exclusively a court expansion group. So our role right. is to is to be the one group that only talks about court expansion. And, you know, there are going to be a lot of sticks and carrots encouraging the other groups to de-emphasize court expansion and focus on other stuff. And so our role is to kind of, you know, be the constant reminder not to forget court expansion. Yeah. Cool. Got it. And so I'm just... You've, you've touched on like some of the failures and how it was just like, this has been a really difficult process, but it's, it's something that you definitely feel like a calling to do and that you, you really see it as being so important. Um, was there like a favorite failure that you've had a, amongst this to where it's been really tough and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm grateful for that almost uh, in persevering through this? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm not grateful for the failures. I don't like the failures. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, it's yeah. Uh you know, screwing up is really hard and it sucks. Yeah. What about like a key takeaway? Like something maybe maybe favorite would be the wrong word, but something that has happened that you um, like learned the most from and were able to like make a correction and then it created a big push for you guys. Is there anything that comes to mind? Um or maybe even something that just was a good unlock that you just hadn't thought was gonna be what it turned out to be. Yeah, I would say you know. At the Palm Center, I've just been blessed with this incredible staff. I mean, the the folks at the Palm Center for 20 years have just been these super committed, like genius people. And it's different. And we have a great staff uh, or team at the at Take Back the Court. But that's not because I knew how to how to hire. Uh, great people, and 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 I, and I found that the the kind of scaling and growing and hiring process is very different in a in a more political campaign than at a research institute. And I really didn't and don't have the skills to um, to scale uh, a political campaign. So it really it, so so kind of scaling effectively really required bringing someone aboard who we just through luck found, um, who has many years of experience, um, scaling, uh, projects that look more like take back the court than, than like the Palm center. And he has done a wonderful job of bringing very, very talented people, um, on board. Um, and, uh, and so that's been, that's been a a, a real blessing. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Did you foresee all of this 
kind of growth? Like when you started this out, like, was there like a general idea of like a timeline or anything? Oh, for the work to, uh, you mean strategically? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the one that we, you know, we've had like three names so far, which is ridiculous. And for a project that's only two and a half years old, but our first name was the one 2021 project. And the reason we were called the one 2021 project is because our argument is that the Democrats maybe, maybe could eke out an election victory one more time before permanently losing the Senate. And that election victory would be November, 2020. And the Democrats would, you know, barely come back to power on January 20th, 2021, which is, by the way, exactly what happened, which is they eked out a victory and came back to power and that the window for expanding the court would be, you know, very short. And so that the expansion should be done very quickly upon the Democrats return um, to power. So so we've always known that we had a very, very short window. Um, I can't remember if I thought, we, I, I guess I must have thought we would at least have some chance to succeed or I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have started the project. Um, uh, I don't, I don't know if I anticipated getting to the point where journalists would keep poking at Biden to ask him about court expansion during the campaign. Like that was, that was pretty surprising. And, and you know, like when RBG died, you know, like the chairman of house judiciary, like, which is, that's the most powerful person uh, in the House on judicial matters, um, Congressman Nadler. He said, uh, you know, if Mitch McConnell fills her seat before the election, we're going to have to expand the court. And, you know, so that that kind of stuff did not happen before we started um, take back the court. So so, yeah, there have been a lot of moments when when I think everyone on our team has been really proud to see the support for the idea amplify and amplify and amplify. Yeah. I mean, we, we couldn't, you know, we tried, I mean, talk about failure, but uh, I mean, on don't ask, don't tell, like we always had champions in the house and Senate who were willing to help us. Even when it was impossible to pass bills, they would do things like, you know, get us information from the defense department, do sign on letters, help with media, um, give speeches, always, always, always on court expansion. I mean, we could not find a single person in the house to help us. Um, the, the Democrats were terrified that talking about a court expansion would lose the 2020 election. And we, you know, we had robust research that, you know, we, we've, we've always thought that idea was ridiculous. And our research after the election showed that in fact, you know, the Republicans pretend that talking about this issue is like an election winner for them, but they spent almost no money on court expansion ads during the campaign. So we were right. But, but, you know, even though we were right, like, the elected officials still believe this. And so, so no one in Congress would, would help us. Now we've got a guy who campaigned for his seat in New York on the basis of becoming the court expansion champion in Congress. And he won his election, Mondaire Jones, the first uh, 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 openly gay black man elected to um, Congress. Uh, uh, and, um, and now he's a very vocal, uh, champion of court expansion in the house. And so, you know, that's just one member of Congress. So there are 216 more that have to come on board, but that's, it's a big difference to go from zero to one because he, he can do things that we couldn't do without a member, which is in particular, he can go to his colleagues and persuade them and horse trade with them to get their support. And it's very different when he does that as opposed to us doing that. Yeah. I'm curious if you had 
a billboard that you could buy and you knew that everybody was going to drive by this billboard. And this can be take back the court related or not. This is a personal Aaron thing. What would you put on that billboard? You can take a second to think about it because that's a big question. Just a message you want to put out into the world that if everybody could see it, that would be the message you would want to get out there. Um, we should all meditate and breathe through our noses. <laughs> all right, I like it. I like it. I Are you a big meditator? No, but I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a, I also share this aspiration. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so another question kind of away from the topic a little bit. Um, I'm curious about like what, do you know now, or maybe that you'd want to inform like your 25 year old self of like, what advice would you give your 25 year old self now after doing all these different things? We're coming in with some hard hitting, (laughs) deep thinking, philosophical questions here this time. You weren't expecting this. (laughs) I've actually thought about this question. uh, I mean, I don't know if I thought about the question in terms of the specific age 25, but, um, but I'm not sure I actually have any advice for my younger self, which is not to say I haven't learned, but I think my younger self, at least professionally, was doing the best he could and and was being driven by a combination of kind of like, you know, heart, you know, passion work that seemed inspirational, that felt inspirational, but also that was, you know, instrumental enough to get a paycheck, um, uh, which I think is about right. And um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've felt very lucky throughout my career because um, I've been able to carve out a space in academia that allowed me to do um, social justice work. And uh, cause I did, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, just being a professor and just publishing scholarly work for your peers, but that's not really what I wanted. And, um, I wanted to do a little of that, but then also do the social justice stuff. And, um, and I've been fortunate enough to do that. And so, no, I just, I feel more grateful than advicey, but I remember in our last conversation, you asked me to give advice to other people. So I guess I'm advicey, mm-hmm. yeah, for we did. People, but for myself, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I had it, I would tell you, but I just, um, uh, again, it's not because I haven't grown or learned, but, um, you know, another, another thing about, uh, you know, maybe this should have, um, I, and I remember ridiculously, you asked me for advice to, to young people last time. And I think I had seven or eight or nine points, which is ridiculous, but, but they, were, they were good points though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like one problem with, with advice is that, you know, I, I, it's, there's a great book about this point that when people or organizations are doing something dysfunctional, the dysfunction is usually there for a reason. The dysfunction is doing important work. So the dysfunction is actually functional. Um, so giving advice to overcome the dysfunction typically does not work because you have to take into account the reasons for the dysfunction. Um, and so I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really have advice for my younger self. Well, I love that answer. Cause I think that, you know, especially for me, and this is something I've come to realize is like, you know, any advice I could give my younger self may very well undo something amazing that has happened since 
that younger version of me had gotten that advice. So, you know, to go back and wish you could do something different for me, I'm not upset with the current version of myself. So why would I want to change it? I'm, I'm very happy with the current version of myself. So I would never want to go back with the, at the risk of undoing that, like who knows what kind of like personality forming moment happened completely organically that I never could have accounted for. And if I had gone back and like, you know, if I had like a, Oh, I wish I did X, Y, and Z in high school, like played that sport or was a part of that club. Like, what if I made different friends and what if those friends influenced me different? And what if that influence got me into different things? And what if I got into other friend groups that didn't make me as proud of myself as I am today? And I just, I could like, I, I despise the cripplingness of that thought. Like I just, and kind of like to the point you're making, I, everything that I've continued to learn has been because I've been doing something wrong and I've had to look at that and learn from that and be able to move forward. So I think in a way you may not have answered our question directly, but you did in a way answer our question. And that is to not really, uh, you know, don't be too critical of your old self and just keep moving forward. I mean, I don't know if that's quite what I'm saying either. I, I, okay. I, well, okay. I, I one piece of, I mean, I don't even know if the books were written, but Pima children is a really wise, um, uh, Buddhist. And she, she talks about how helpful it is to just be present without an agenda, which is hard to achieve in America because there are so many, uh, you know, temptations that are kind of stitched into the fabric of our lives that are designed to both, insight and agenda and also have us not be present when we're like, you know, yearning for candy or, or internet, uh, you know, email answering email or reading Facebook. But anyway, so, so it would have been helpful to just, I guess, know about that possible, about that invitation to be present. And, and also, sorry, as a junior scholar, where like, you know, you're in a way it's almost like 24 seven, you, you, part of you thinks that you have to like worry about, you know, being instrumental to finish your degree and then get a job and then get tenure. And, you know, so there are a lot of incentives pointing in, in unhealthy directions, but, um, but I think just knowing about the option and the invitation to kind of be present at a, at a very interpersonal level, uh, to be present without an agenda would have been super helpful. Um, I, I am, uh, and in no way am I even claiming that the work is anywhere near completion because I think it's a lifelong process, but I was, uh, outrageously ignorant of, um, white privilege and how white privilege had helped me, um, uh, at that point. So that like the beginnings of those realizations only came later. So that would have been, that would have been important to know at an earlier point. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think those are great words. And yeah, thinking about just how important the process is, but also, yeah, that we need to try to enjoy it when we can. Or, or not run away from not enjoying it when you're not enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just right. being present, like you said. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, Pima Children is very wise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the professor that we talked to like a couple of weeks ago brought up Pima children as well and recommended uh, oh, a book. Yeah. yeah. I know really? we were talking about yep. the importance of meditation and <laughs> yeah, what, it was awesome. What field is the professor from? Uh, psychology. But like what mm-hmm. kind of psychology? Um, so she does a lot of research in like self-compassion and stigma and it's 
she does clinical work, uh, but she got her degree in counseling psychology, uh-huh. but does a lot of research. Um, do you remember which Pima Children book was she recommending? Like uh, when things fall apart or start where linked you are, it, right? I'm pretty sure it's when things fall apart. Yeah, that's a that's a great yeah. book. Highly recommend. Yeah. <laughs> I need to dive into that. I haven't gotten yeah, there yet. Things fall apart. That was it. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been awesome yeah. to learn more about this part of your work. Cause I know that this is something that's more present today that you're doing. Um, and it's, yeah, it's so awesome to see how much of take back the court is in the conversation now. Like you just Google it and it's, it's there. Yeah. It's everywhere. Um, so I know that it has been a really tough process, but what, things have really gotten moving really rapidly, it sounds like. I think so. And they're going to move rapidly. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the politics are sh- judicial reform politics are shifting very, very fast and will continue to shift rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I wanted to add too, I just appreciate like how you emphasize that the goal is that this is just something that needs to happen in order for like civilization to progress. Like there are larger concerns at stake, right? I mean, the court's not gonna tolerate HR1 and the court's not gonna tolerate a climate bill. You know, (laughs) so if we want democracy and we wanna have a chance of fighting climate change, gotta change court, it's that simple. It's really that simple. Yep. Yeah. So thank you so much for the time again. We really appreciate the conversation and um, we look forward to continuing to follow your work and take back the court and also the Palm Center. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.